Alliance of Churches, we are a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, mission-focused movement working together to make Jesus known around the world. And what I'm so excited about in this series, Exponential, is that today Mike and Nikki are going to be helping us gain a global perspective on how they are making Jesus known and how we can partner with them. So last week we began this series and I kept reminding you that you have no idea what God may do through a single seed planted in faith. And what I love is even their story and how God brought them up. Uh, Mike was a missionary's kid and Nikki was brought up in a church environment that missions was just so important and it was just part of their DNA and how God then brought them together to further his kingdom. And it's all through these single seeds that previous generations have planted. Uh, so today we're lucky to have you guys here. Thank you so much for being here. I'll let you guys take it away. And um, yeah. <laughs> Woo. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, it's a it's an honor to be here again. We're back here in January, so um, we will give a little bit more of an update on who we are again, in case you missed that or have forgotten who we were. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Kevin said, we're Mike and Nikki Howell. Um, we're international workers in Senegal, West Africa, and we recently completed a two-year apprenticeship and have now been appointed as full-time international workers with the Christian Missionary Alliance. We're so glad to be here with you today um, to share what God has been doing in us in Senegal um, and what he's been teaching us over the last two years. Um, so as Kevin said, I grew up as a missionary kid. Um, my parents, Gary and Sharon Howell, moved to Africa when I was six months old. Um, I sensed that from a young age, God was calling me to minister in an inter international context, and this became more clear to me. Um, during my later years of high school, uh, I made the choice to go to Tacoa Falls College down in Georgia and study cross-cultural studies, um, but also to play soccer. And then before heading overseas, I also got a red seal in carpentry when we lived in London. Yeah, I got to say that's probably the coolest intro that we've gotten at any <laughs> church. So feeling pretty pumped up here. Um, like Kevin said, I grew up in Owen Sound. I attended the Alliance Church there for my whole life. And as a child in Sunday school, I was very interested in missions. And this was largely because missions was so normalized in that context. Um, visiting missionaries would come and speak to the Sunday school classes, not just to the adults upstairs, but they would come and share with us. And these visiting missionaries included Mike's parents. As I grew up, I kind of wrestled with this desire for missions fading a little bit as I also felt really keen about the field of speech-language pathology and healthcare, and didn't really know how those two callings reconciled with each other. Um, Mike and I began dating in high school during one of his family's home assignments, and he was clear for the start, from the start that he saw a future for himself overseas, and I knew it would be unwise to pursue the relationship if I didn't also see that independently for myself as a calling. Um, so after my first year of university, um, I wrestled, like I said, with these two seemingly conflicting callings, and I sensed God just asking me to surrender all of my future plans to him, not to choose between the two, which one was more God-honoring, but just to lay it all down at his feet. And soon after doing this, I started to hear for the first time how useful training in a healthcare field is in an international context. Um, so it was really God in his goodness 
giving both of these back to me, intertwined in a really meaningful way after I had surrendered to him. We got married in 2014 and lived and worked in London, Ontario. And our son Todd was born in 2018 and we began the application to be international workers with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. We set our target departure date of January 2021 to Senegal, West Africa, and we were excited to begin support raising in January 2020. We figured once our second son was born, we would take a shared parental leave and enter into full-time preparation for departure. Our son Oliver was born March 2020. He arrived on the fateful Monday that none of us will ever forget. It was the first day of the March break that felt like it never ended. We walked into the hospital for his delivery as normal, and within 24 hours, we were watching everyone coming in be screened under the new, at the time, coronavirus protocols um, as we were walking out with our newborn. And it was a wild time to bring a child into the world. No one laid a hand on him after we left that hospital other than immediate family and the occasional nurse for the first three months of his life. And it was also our first real opportunity to trust that God would provide what we needed to get us overseas, uh, to rely on his strength and not our own. We were just entering into support raising and suddenly we couldn't meet with people and everyone's financial situation was potentially precarious. Um, so it's a testament to God's faithfulness that we were able to raise over 100% of our budgeted support and leave for Senegal on our previously planned departure date of January 2021. This was such an affirmation for us of God's plan in this, and the future was more uncertain than ever, and during that time, God was consistently reminding us that he was in control and his plans could not be thwarted. Now, it wasn't easy leaving for two years under the height of lockdowns. As you'll remember, after Christmas 2020, Ontario once again went into a lockdown and we felt like we were leaving under the cover of night. We couldn't give hugs that we so desperately wanted to give. There were no occasions for large farewell gatherings. And in some ways it felt surreal. I can remember standing on friends' driveways and shouting goodbyes to them while they stood in their doorways. And then we were off. So we spent the last two years in Dakar, Senegal, completing a global ministries apprenticeship program. Um, we studied language, and we also underwent core training for ordination with our district. Um, we had the opportunity to jump into as many different ministries as we could, um, like volunteering at a school for deaf children, teaching literacy classes to women in a fishing village, sports outreach, taking part in a church planting small group study in Wolof, and visiting and learning from local pastors and leaders. And we did all of this with the goal of trying to discern future ministry calling and involvement. And with two toddlers in tow, it was certainly a busy time. <laughs> so here's a little bit more information about Senegal. Senegal is a country in West Africa with an estimated population of 17 million. So about half the population of Canada. French is the official language, but there are 39 distinct indigenous languages spoken there as well the most common of which is Wolof. The Wolof people are the largest ethnic group, making up almost half of the population, followed by the Fulani. Although Senegal is a more stable country than several of the surrounding ones, it is still considered heavily indebted and impoverished nation, and significant portions of the population are unemployed or underemployed. Senegal is a secular state, but Islam is the predominant religion which is practiced by over 97% of the population. The majority of the remaining 3% are Catholic, 
which leaves just a fraction of a percent as evangelical Christians. The CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, has been in Senegal since 2006, with Canadian workers arriving in just 2016, but missionary presence has been there for almost 100 years. There are workers from North America, Latin America, Asia, Europe, and other parts of Africa with various sending organizations, but the work is challenging and the fruit is little. Some small church house churches are beginning among the least reached groups, which is really exciting, um, groups such as the Wolof and the Fulani. And we learned so much from our time in Senegal. Um, we made amazing friends, both in the local community and the international community. Um, God stretched us and spoke to us like never before. It was such a blessing to have my parents leading us and serving alongside us. And we got to enjoy what Senegal has to offer, its beautiful beaches, and explore much of the country from the lush tropical south to the arid desert north. So with all those good moments, um, there were also hard days. I struggled with missing Canada, most of all my family, on many days. Missing special days like holidays and birthdays, as well as milestone moments like our son's first steps uh, away from family was really difficult. We underwent several significant trials, including having a rock thrown through our window, car window while driving by a protest, uh, the death of a grandparent back home, walking through our son Todd's health crisis, which involved a 10-day stay in the hospital in Dakar, and a subsequent medical return to Canada, uh, enduring a sharp increase in crime and violent robberies in our area, and a major flooding event that forced us out of our home and destroyed several of our belongings. Even in the midst of this, God was revealing his nearness to us, whether through his words, worship, a timely book recommendation, or the availability of friends and family, both in Senegal and around the world. We returned to Canada in December 2022, and our third son, Pascal, was born February 27th, 2023. We have loved being able to spend time adjusting to being a family of five while in Canada. And we're learning how home assignment is a time of rest for us as global workers, not necessarily because of a lightened workload, but the sabbatical element, especially for me, comes from just feeling at home in this culture. It's easy, even effortless, to do, for me to do things here that are quite challenging for me to do on my own in Senegal. I can drive myself places without fear. I can understand what's being said to me, for example, at a medical appointment without confusion due to language and cultural differences. Uh, I don't need to overthink what's appropriate for me to wear when I leave the house, uh, and we don't feel conspicuous when our family walks down the street. Our kids can enjoy fun Sunday school programming, like today, in a language that they understand, and when things go bump in the night, I'm not afraid our home is being broken into by someone who may be targeting us as foreigners, and not to mention the comforts of familiar foods, weather, and social conventions. Now, I hope this doesn't come across as complaining. We truly do love living in Senegal, and I anticipate feeling more and more at home there with each passing year. And there are hardships for sure that come with living in Canada that we just don't have to navigate when we're overseas. So through it all, God is teaching us what it looks like to be content in every circumstance and to be fully present wherever in the world he has called us to. So we've spent the last few months speaking at different churches and visiting and sharing about our lives and our ministry. And as Kevin said, God willing, we're planning to return to Senegal in September. Um, we're anticipating a move from Dakar, the capital city, to Chess, another large city about an hour away. 
in this new location, we'll have even more access to unreached people groups like the Wolof that are our priority in reaching with the gospel. We'll continue to discern where God would have us serve in a ministry capacity during this time as well. Um, but our hope would be to combine discipleship and church planting with access ministries such as relief and development or sports outreach. Um, so now that you know a little bit more about us and our lives and our work, we'd like to focus this morning on one of our biggest takeaways from the last two years, um, learning about how our worldview affects how we understand the gospel. Maybe this concept isn't new to you, but it was new to us, and we'll be borrowing a lot of this explanation from a book titled The 3D Gospel by Jason Georges. The fundamental idea is that every person has a worldview, and that's the way that we make sense of the world um, around us. The culture that we're born into significantly it affects our worldview, and it impacts almost every area of our lives from how we celebrate a child being born to how close we like to stand when we're talking with people um, to how we react after receiving a medical diagnosis and so on. Our worldview also impacts our response to sin. Researchers have grouped this response into three categories, guilt, shame, and fear. And there are also three desirable states that go along with those, which are innocence, honor, and power. So to contrast these three worldviews, here are some real life examples that you can answer to yourself um, and think about which response makes the most sense to you. So people avoid trash dumps because they're unhygienic and smelly. They defile people or they're where spirits reside. Misdeeds primarily affect the offender's internal conscience, public reputation, or fate. After bad behavior, people feel remorseful, inferior, or anxious. Weddings usually start near the scheduled time, once key people arrive, or at an auspicious time or lucky day. A birthmark is considered harmless, an embarrassing blemish, or an omen or sign. So you might have had more than one answer for some of these questions, but I would wager for those of us who grew up in Canada or another Western culture that we align most with the first response to most of these questions. If you're from another part of the world, you could think about how your answers might have differed from those around you and have things changed since you've come to Canada. Um, would you compare yourself to an older generation um, from where you're from? Would they have a different answer or maybe someone who lives in a more rural setting? Uh, so we can see how all those things, those factors impact our worldview. So let's take a look at some more theological examples. What does sin violate? Is it God's laws and justice through law breaking? God's face and glory through disloyalty? or God's authority and power through idolatry? What is our false hope found in? Morality and good works? Identity, connections, and a good name? Or rituals and spiritual knowledge? Who is Jesus? Is he our substitute and sacrifice? 
maybe our mediator and brother? Or is Jesus our conqueror and liberator? What's the purpose of forgiveness? Forgiveness pardons wrongs. It reconciles relationships. Or it removes strongholds. Forgiveness leads to peace with whom? Ourself? Others? Or creation? And finally, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit guides our behavior. He offers communion with the Trinity. Or he empowers us for battle. Now, unlike the last section where you might have felt that some of the answers were just more legitimate than others, such as the significance of a birthmark, it's clear for each of these responses, even though they're culturally conditioned, each one of them has a firm basis in scripture. I'm sure some Bible verses may have even been coming to your minds as we were going through those. So we know that all of these things are true at the same time, but some of them might just feel more significant to us than others. So if this is our experience in this part of the world, then it makes sense that other people in the rest of the world, when they encounter the gospel, they're going to naturally emphasize other aspects of the gospel that align with their worldview. So this begs the question, have we been sharing with others and also believing for ourselves an incomplete gospel? That is a gospel that addresses only the issues of guilt and not that of fear and shame. Despite the multifaceted nature of the gospel, Western Christianity has primarily emphasized only one aspect of the gospel. That is moving from a state of guilt into a state of innocence. But what, what do we do when we meet those from other cultures who aren't really all that concerned with their guiltiness, but who are plagued by a lingering sense of shame from their community, or who maybe are kept up at night by a sense of fear um, from demonic oppression? Even when a new believer is made sure of the forgiveness of their guilt, they may still struggle with feelings of shame. They may require a step beyond atonement. They require adoption. Or perhaps a Christian is confident of their secure future in eternity, but they're struggling with how the gospel affects their life now as they're surrounded by spiritual forces that threaten their health and family. Does the gospel offer them more than eternal security? Does it offer them power over evil and triumph over fear? In reaching the world with the gospel, we really have two choices. We can either take the time to convince someone of their, of their guilt and then provide them with an answer to that newly felt problem, or we can meet them with the answer to their current problems of shame or fear with the holistic gospel. Then, as they grow in their knowledge, they'll also come to see their guilt before a holy God and learn how the gospel addresses that need as well. So we're going to read this morning from Isaiah 61. So if you want to open up your Bible or pull it up on your device, um, we'll give you a minute to find it. Um, and let's pray just while you're turning there. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together and study your word. Um, Lord, to learn more about who you are and your revelation to us, Lord, um, and really just understand the gospel message a little bit deeper this morning. Help us to um, see how you've provided a way um, for people from every culture and every nation, um, no matter who they are or where they are, Lord, that you provide the answer for the problems in their life. 
And so we just pray that you would open our eyes to see that this morning and um, guide our hearts. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Isaiah 61. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ru ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance, and so they will inherit a double portion in the land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they will be that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I will I will delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. So we can see from this text that God exchanges our guilt for innocence, our shame for honor, and our fear for power. And this is done through the work of Jesus Christ. So how does this divine exchange work? Uh, we'll take a closer look at the passage, but first, how do we know that this Old Testament passage is about the work of Jesus Christ? Well, because Jesus himself made the connection in Luke chapter 4, reading from verses 16 to 21. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is speaking of Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon. After he made this bold proclamation, reading from verses 28 to 30, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, 
drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus came to earth to complete God's mission to rescue, redeem, and restore his people. He accomplished this by living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and rising from the dead. This means that before a holy God, our sinful record is exchanged for his perfect record. Our rejected and isolated realities are replaced with adoption into God's family forever. And our weak and fearful lives are filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And this salvation is available to you. If you've never fully understood this or haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, today can be the day that you experience complete salvation, restoration, and hope. Let's return to looking at how this exchange works. Reading from verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. So this divine exchange works by addressing the felt needs of all three worldviews. We can see that binding up the brokenhearted means restoring honor to those who sit in shame. Freedom for the captives looks like granting power to those who are trapped in fear. And release from darkness for the prisoners means paying the penalty of, of guilt so we can walk in innocence. The gospel message, we can picture it really like a diamond. It has many facets, and as we turn it around and around, <clears throat> we can find a new dimension to marvel at. We can rejoice that the God who created all the cultures of the world has made his offer of salvation accessible to all of us, by addressing our most heartfelt needs. Now, if you're still needing a memory aid to differentiate between these three worldviews, I like this one uh, because each answer starts with the same letter. So what does the grace of God overcome? For those of us from an innocence guilt perspective, mainly that's our wickedness. For people who mostly identify with an honor-shame perspective, it overcomes our worthlessness. And for those from a power-fear culture, it overcomes our weakness. And we know it overcomes all of these, but uh, we can think of it. What does the grace of God overcome? Wickedness, worthlessness, and weakness. I know I find that helpful as a quick reference. So how does this divine exchange work? It addresses the felt needs of all three worldviews, and this divine exchange removes the problems of guilt, shame, and fear. We read in verse 3, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God takes away our ashes, our mourning, and our despair. He gives us a crown as those who will reign with him, anoints us with oil as his royal priesthood, and clothes us with a garment of praise as those who will forever join with the elders and angels worshiping around his throne. Above all, he plants us in good soil, so we will grow like mighty oak trees, that we might display his glory, majesty, and splendor in our lives. We want to encourage you with the story of our friend Modu. After coming to Christ, Modu faced persecution from his family to the point where he was called before the family for a council to defend his decision to leave Islam and follow Christ. One member of the family let Modu know that he would be bringing a gun to the meeting. 
and he had the ability to end Modu's life without facing any legal repercussions due to his military status. In the midst of all of this, our friend recognized the words that Jesus spoke in John 15 that took away his shame from being rejected from his family. It says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Jesus had gone before him and had already borne the shame of being rejected and despised. He also saw the words of Jesus in Luke 12 that took away his fear of appearing before a hostile family. <clears throat> and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Imagine how much pressure you might feel to say the exact right thing to defend your faith to a skeptical family members, especially when your life was in danger. But because of the freedom from fear that Modu felt, he prayed to God for guidance and did not prepare further. And in the end, the Holy Spirit provided him with such wisdom that the religious leaders present at that meeting had no way to refute him. He was allowed to return home safely and even given a prominent place of leadership in the family structure. So we've seen from our text that God exchanges our guilt for innocence, our shame for honor, and our fear for power. And this is done through the work of Jesus Christ. So how does this divine exchange work? By addressing the felt needs of all three worldviews, by removing the problems of guilt, shame, and fear. But it wouldn't truly be an exchange if we didn't get something in return, in place of what was taken away. We see in our passage that God replaces our guilt, shame, and fear with innocence, honor, and power. But this is not just a simple trade. In the currency of our God, the exchange is multiplied, or you could even say made exponential. Reading from verse 7, um, not sure why this isn't showing up all at once here. Here we go. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in the land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Let's think about what a double portion means for us. It means that in Christ, we have abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. This applies to all three lenses of the gospel. We're not only innocent of major wrongdoing, we are blameless in Christ. We not only have a clean record, but all of Jesus' righteousness has been attributed to our account. We're not only adopted into God's family, but we are treated as firstborn sons, and thus entitled to a double share of the inheritance. We're not only given a community of fellow believers on this earth, but we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in heaven cheering us on as we run the race of faith. We're not only given weapons to demolish divine strongholds, we are given incomparably great power that's like the working of God's mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. We've not just had the veil of the law removed from our faces, but we now reflect God's glory as we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Hallelujah. We want to share one more story of a good friend of ours in Senegal. Someone who, when she came to faith in Christ, received a double portion of the power of God in exchange for fear. Our friend Jamie was born into a Muslim family with powerful spiritual connections. She came to faith as a young woman while living abroad. 
Her father had connection with a powerful Muslim marabou, which is a combination of a religious teacher as well as something like a witch doctor. And her father asked this marabou to keep an eye on his daughter while she was so far from home. Our friend Jamie would visit this man who, through his occult spiritual influence, was able to see into her life in between her visits. He was aware of what she was doing, who she was with, where she was going. After coming to Christ, the first time Jamie went to visit this man, he was quite concerned. His concern, uh, he asked repeatedly if she was okay, but he had no idea that she had become a believer. His concern was because, in, in his words, um, he could no longer see into her life, and when he tried, everything looked just cloudy. Our friend, for her own safety, kept her decision of faith a secret, but left the visit astounded. She hadn't even asked God for this special spiritual protection. She hadn't even been aware that when she gave her life to Christ, which was primarily motivated by God's love for her, that she would also receive this divine power over darkness that was so present in her life. What a testament of our good father's willingness to provide abundantly for his children's deepest needs in exchange for our deepest wrongs. This divine exchange works by removing our problems of guilt, shame, and fear and replacing them with a double portion of innocence, honor, and power. And most importantly, God's plan for salvation relies on his faithfulness and not ours. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. God's covenant with his people then did not depend on the faithfulness of Israel, and his plan for salvation to come to all people today does not depend on our faithfulness either. Hallelujah. Our salvation was entirely due to God's faithfulness. And the salvation of all nations, which will result in the righteous living and praise of God, is entirely dependent on his faithfulness as well. This is why the gospel is such great news. Who among us could be as faithful as God to pursue him like he pursued us? Who could handle the weight of knowing that someone's eternal future rests on their shoulders? We as followers of Christ aren't in charge of the fruit that comes from the seed of the gospel. God is like the soil and the garden who causes the seed to grow. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. God is the garden, but we are the gardener. In Mark 4, 26 to 29, it says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. We often feel in the dark about how God is working. We don't know what is going on deep down in the soil, but we're called to be ready when the harvest comes that we may welcome new souls into the kingdom. So now that we've examined how this divine exchange works, let's turn now to applying it to our lives. So why is it important for us to understand all three dimensions of the gospel? First, while the Western world has predominantly an innocence guilt worldview, most unreached people around the world do not. 
And this is not just important for missionaries, because more and more people from around the world are moving into our Canadian neighborhoods. The arrival of immigrants and refugees in our cities is a stroke of genius on God's part. Many of these people are coming from countries that are difficult or impossible for gospel workers to get to. And once these workers arrive in those hard places, it can take them years to learn the language and culture well enough to have a meaningful conversation to share the gospel. Yet, God is bringing people from these hard places to us here in Canada, people who are motivated to learn English and raise their families in the Canadian context. As God brings newcomers into our spheres of influence, God willing, we'll have the chance to share the gospel with them. But sharing a gospel that doesn't address their most deeply felt needs may be met with blank stares or indifference or disinterest. And this is why we need to be well acquainted with how the gospel addresses the needs of all cultures, including the needs of shame and fear, in order to share this good news with newcomers around us. Second, Scripture consistently addresses the dimensions of honor and shame and power and fear, but we don't always have eyes to see it. The Bible was written in an era and location that looks much more similar to the majority world nations of today than the Western world. To paraphrase from a book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, reading the Bible is fundamentally a cross-cultural experience. In order for us to get the most out of our time in the Word, we need to recognize what the passage is really about. We read the Bible from a perspective of innocence and guilt, but even the most obvious texts might have more to say about honor and shame than we realize. What passage comes to mind when you think about guilt in Scripture? Maybe Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short. But fall short of what? The perfection of the law? The righteous standard of the Lord? Not in this case. The rest of the verse says the glory of God. That's classic honor and shame terminology, and we need to have eyes to be able to see that. So we'd encourage you to keep this in mind as you read your Bible throughout this next week. And lastly, whether we realize it or not, we ourselves need salvation from shame and fear, not just guilt. Even if one aspect of the gospel resonates with you most strongly, no one person or one culture is entirely characterized by one dimension of the gospel. To quote from the book 3D Gospel, theological tunnel vision that sees only one facet of the diamond, meaning the gospel, shackles our own relationship with God. Western Christians may have full assurance that their guilt has been washed away, but still be plagued by shame and fear. So now we have some questions for you to consider in your own life as you reflect on your need for a complete gospel that also addresses honor, shame, and power, fear. Do you still experience shame over past or present circumstances? Are you consumed with trying to project a perfect image of your work, family, and spiritual life to those around you while knowing that the reality is nothing close to that? Do you struggle to view yourself as worthy honored and esteemed in God's sight? And is there an area of your life that needs more than forgiveness, that needs restoration and identity change? Are you fearful of the future? Does fear keep you up at night? What is your fear response when you consider engaging in spiritual warfare? Do you struggle to take hold of the power that is yours in Christ? And is there an area of your life that needs more than assurance of eternity with God, but that needs equipping and empowering for life now? 
We encourage you to consider this week how your relationship with God may have been limited by theological tunnel vision. To end our time together, let's revisit Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is our prayer when we consider our work among the unreached in Senegal. These are people who could easily go their entire lives and never encounter another believer, let alone one who comes from their own people group. Many of them believe that to be Wolof or Fulani is to be Muslim. There's no other choice for their lives. But God is appearing to some of them in dreams and visions, and they may be, they may be searching for someone to help explain those to them. Some of them are secret believers, unable to admit their life change to family and friends for threat of persecution, or until they have a church family who can come around them and offer support. All of them feel the crushing weight of their shame and fear and deeply desire honor and power. Our hearts long for God's name to be praised among all nations. He's the only one who offers salvation that exchanges our guilt, shame, and fear for innocence, honor, and the power of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for this gospel message that you've given to us to share with people around the world, um, a message that brings freedom and life. And as your word says, Lord, would you make these seeds sprout? Would you continue to bring life in the desert of Senegal? Um, and also as newcomers come to Canada, Lord, would you provide opportunities for them to be, uh, for their eyes to be open and their hearts to be open? We pray all this in your name. Amen.